Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name is Tim Grady, and I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss. And we're going to be speaking with Dr. Chris Keel, who joins us every month for the Credit Managers Index Report, and also his comments on the economy, Lou, which are delivered with humor uh, in sometimes uh, dark and funky days. Well, I'm not sure how humorous all this stuff is, frankly, <laughs> but uh, he is funny in spite of himself. So well, welcome you know, aboard, Chris. Well, thank you very much. There is such a thing as black humor, you know. Um, you know <laughs> there where, is, in, but in, you in, don't where, talk where, about those things anymore. Yeah, that's true. So we'll just we'll just have to we'll just have to accept that that what is it whistling whistling in the graveyard or something like that. So right. actually, this month we have better than normal news. Not that it's an excuse to go party in the streets, but at least maybe signals that that we reached close to a bottom or might have hit a bottom. As we as we look at the latest credit managers index, so there's always that to look forward to. Oh, well, good to tell us about it because uh, I have my own views about where we're at in in this world, so <laughs> I need a little cheering up. Exactly. And I don't well, want to. Do, I don't want to do it with a Manhattan and a couple of cherries. So why don't you give well, me? Well, we we were we were pretty convinced that that you had decided to move to Thule, Greenland, um, just to kind of wait this out with the Eskimos and the and the polar bears. But you know, so apparently you're still here. So that that's I, encouraging. I, I have no problem with it. I have no problem with it. Uh, Alaska is also a good place to go and hide. Even though their corona numbers have increased, but it's easy to be hiding away in a cabin (laughs) somewhere and no one will find you. Social isolation is the way of life uh, in the tundra. That's it. So here's the scoop on the credit manager's index, and I'm going to go into a little bit more detail just so people understand why. This is better than than the news we've had the last couple months. The credit manager's index is modeled on the purchasing manager's index, which everybody in this audience is quite familiar with. So the numbers work out to be the same. Anything over 50 is considered expansion. Anything under 50 is considered contraction. We do the same thing the PMI does, where we ask credit managers very simple questions that really can be answered with either more or less or the same. We divide the index into two sections. One is the favorable factors. The other is the unfavorable factors. And this is from the perspective of a credit manager. So the favorables would be things like sales, applications for credit, dollar collections, amount of credit extended. Those are the four favorable factors. The unfavorables, again, from the credit manager's perspective, would be things like disputes and rejections of credit apps and accounts out for collection, bankruptcies, slow pays, things like that. 
the last couple of months, we saw an absolute crash in the favorable factors. Sales went from numbers in the 60s to numbers in the 20s. We saw applications for credit fall from the 60s into the low 30s. We saw dollar collections fall from the 60s to the low 30s. I mean, it was carnage. And April and May were just brutal. This last month, all of those favorables came back up. Um, Now, they're not above 50. They're not in technically positive territory, but they went from the 20s and 30s back up into the mid-40s, which is still contraction. It's still not where we'd like it to be, but it was a a really impressive rebound. The non-favorables really haven't changed that much, not even over the last three months, because there really hasn't been enough time. Things like bankruptcies and accounts out for collection, those aren't going to start up until the debtor is at a point where their agreement has expired. I mean, if they had 90-day terms or 120-day terms, they're not due to pay yet, so they're not going to be in arrears until that point is reached. Credit managers tend to think into the future. They're more concerned about what's going to happen down the road than what's happening now because they're concerned about the ability of the debtor to pay them when they reach that 90, 120-, 180-day term limit. So when you see these favorables come back up, it's an indication that the credit managers are getting a little more confident. They're seeing a little more activity with the companies that they're doing business with. And we have watched over the years that the CMI tends to predict the PMI by about a month or two. So if we see gains this month, we're reasoning that there'll probably be gains in the PMI next month or the month after. So this is almost grasping at straws, but not quite. <laughs> so we're we're looking at the credit managers who are saying, well, you know, we're a little more confident than we were before. We're extending credit a little more aggressively than we were. We think we're going to get paid back. And it's not a 100% we're out of the woods, but we were deeply concerned going into this month that those numbers would get even deeper into the 20s, and they didn't. They went the other way. So that right now is passing for good news. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of – the way that I can compare this is that if you're a Cincinnati Bengal fan – the good news is you drafted a good quarterback. You're still probably going to lose all your games next year, but hey, um, <laughs> there's there's hope on the horizon. It's <laughs> cold. <laughs> True, but cold. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you say things are getting better, but we're going to lose, so we should feel good. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of like, you know, we're we're now – learning to make do with, with little little glimmers of hope as opposed to anything radical. I mean, we're frankly, we're going to know a lot more about what's happening in the economy by the end of this month, even into July, because the rebound and the reopening has been halting, and we know that. I mean, originally there was this notion that somehow we were going to – some kind of a peak when it came to infections in April, which we did, and then you would have a pretty rapid reestablishment of business. But 
that did not figure with how this was going to be handled politically. And you've got every single state doing things a little differently. And some of them saying, yes, we're going to reopen right away. And then you have others like Illinois that says, we're not going to open until every single person in the world has a vaccine and, and, and is happy and joyous and gay, which means Illinois will open in the year 3053. Um, so, we're we're kind of in a mixed mixed bag right now with some parts of the economy reopening and other parts of the economy still waiting. Uh, I you know we've uh, I'm in manufacturing as you know with the All Metals and Forge Group and one of the things that we've seen uh that over the last couple of months things have been uh is there's more activity not, not mm-hmm. talking now in the manufacturing sector. There's more activity. There's more uh, uh, bids being put out for uh, quotation. Um, and we hear a lot of promises. And then we hear, well, we're, get, we're getting the order, you're getting the order, but the customer hasn't decided to sign the order yet. Mm-hmm. And I tell you that that's probably the highest percentage number of stories that we hear from our customers than maybe in the last 20 years. Right. So everybody says, yeah, the business is there. You're getting the order. We got the order. You're getting the order. But somebody didn't sign up. So somebody Mm -hmm. is playing chicken. Well, and what you're running into is that that final mile, that that delivery to the consumer, everyone is still being very cautious and extremely nervous about what that consumer is going to do. The consumer has been giving mixed signals. On the one hand, they're indicating that, boy, they sure would like to go back to their old patterns. And then you start saying, so are you going out to the restaurants again? No. Are you going out shopping again? No. Are you planning to buy a car again? No. Well, then how do you expect to go back to normal? Well, yeah, but I'm afraid of the COVID. Okay. Right. Um, well, you're you're going to have to make a call here because you're either ready to go back or you're not. And unfortunately, and this has been an issue throughout, we're getting very mixed messages because we've got one group of people that are warning about the pandemic as they should. I mean, this is a serious disease, but you have another group that's warning about the damage to the economy and the consumers hearing both. And so they're like, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, you're going to have to make a choice like everybody else has. And and it's not going to be an easy one. And people don't want to, you know, they want a solution. They want someone to say the virus is all gone. It's perfectly safe which will never happen. You know, the viruses that we are dealing with today, we've been dealing with for centuries, and COVID-19 will never go away. It's always going to be with us now, just like the flu and smallpox and everything else. We'll learn to manage it, and that's where we're in, in the process of doing now, is trying to figure out how we manage. I mean, in the beginning, the only reason we were doing containment was to make sure we didn't overwhelm the medical sector. And we're now at that point. The medical sector has said, look, we can handle 
the people who will be needing hospitalization. We're not in that crisis mode anymore. Even with the second wave, we'll be in good shape. That was sufficient two months ago. Now I'm not sure that people are looking at it that way. There's this there's idea that somehow we can be even more in control than that, and I don't know that we can. So <clears throat> now the economic argument is becoming more and more urgent because, well, you know, 40 million people out of work, and we have all the the kind of ancillary activity that comes from economic stress. I mean, not to get into a huge discussion about the riots and protests and demonstrations in the U.S., but they're happening all over the world. Um, there are demonstrations in Europe. There have been violent demonstrations in France and Spain and Italy. There's been a 1,000 people killed in Brazil uh, in riots over the last two weeks. There have been riots in India that have killed almost 3,000 people. Economic stress basically brings everything to the forefront, and it's happening globally because people are desperate and they're afraid and they're angry. And that's that's one of the things that the intelligence community has always warned about. They said, if you want to know where civil unrest comes from, it comes from economic distress. You're right. You're right. And uh, there's more and more of that coming. Uh, you know, the issues that are going on with uh, China and Taiwan and Hong Kong, and uh, mm-hmm. th- those are yet to be played out. Um, Absolutely. The, the fact that uh, uh, our El Presidente uh, wants to pull out of Germany, well, that's going to really screw up Europe really well. Uh, it, this is a very uh, uh, it's a very unfortunate time for us to be having all of these new games being played. On top it, of the it, definitely fact, is. Yeah, on the on the on top of the fact that uh, uh, you know we do have people dying, uh, we now have uh, mastered the fact to bring the uh, uh, black racism issue to the forefront, uh, which does play a role somewhere along the line in this. Uh, so we have a lot of things that we're dealing with, and uh, people are, as you said earlier, people are afraid. Hence, right. the guy who has to put the signature on the purchase order is holding back. Exactly, and and they're concerned because they're trying to project what their ultimate consumer is going to do, and they don't really have a good sense. Tomorrow, for example, and is is the release of the latest University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Survey, and it's not expected to be very good, and it hasn't been over the last couple of months. We don't know how much to pay attention to those surveys, to be honest, because consumers are frequently very flighty when it comes to answering those things. But in the next month or two, we'll be able to tell whether people are really going back to the the retail operations or not. Uh, we don't know if people's habits have really changed or if they have essentially been forced to change temporarily. We know, for example, that everyone now is participating in the great work-from-home experiment. Early on, everybody thought, wow, this is awesome. You know, I can hang around all day in my sweatpants and work from home. 
now the polls are coming out saying people are being driven crazy by this and, and they don't <laughs> want to work home anymore. Um, they have discovered that they had children and who the heck idea was that? Um, <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, I used to be able to safely avoid those kids for 50 hours a week, not now. Um, so it's, it's going to be an interesting transition. Some people will like it, some won't. Um, the adjustments are, are well underway. So it this and the challenge with economic data has always been you can have it accurate or you can have it fast. You can't have both. So right now we're looking at the data as it comes out, and it's like, well, okay, that's what we know today. It'll change by tomorrow, um, but here's where we are so far. And particularly in this environment, the, the data is just all over the place. Yeah, I uh, I have uh, some of our employees uh, at All Metals and Forge Group are calling up and saying, "When can I come back? When can I come back? <laughs> you, know, exactly. it, it, you can't come back. You can't come back. You're gone. You're history. You work from home. You work better from home. There's less BS from home, except for the BS that you have to put up with. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. Now, to, uh, from my side of the coin, uh, I've been in the office every day through this uh, uh, pandemic. Uh, no one's here. Uh, I have uh, one or two people who are here who are spread out over several three, 4,000 feet, so we never see one, one another. But uh, it, it is interesting that uh, we've had – a very strong commitment from our employees who are really doing an excellent job operating from home. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, maybe even to a better extent than when they're in the office. So to that extent, I'm happy. And, uh, and they may be sowing the seeds of their own destruct, destruction in that <laughs> they may wind up working from home forever. Well, and, and one of the one of the discoveries that we've made is that people who really know their job and have always known their job and have essentially worked alone when they've been at the office. I mean, they go to their office, they go to their cube, they put their head down, they get their work done. It doesn't really matter where they do that. I mean, they've been doing it in an office environment. They could do it from home. Where the companies are finding the biggest challenge are – one, new people who don't know anyone at the company yet, don't know the corporate culture, don't really have any idea who to turn to when they have questions. And so they're they're kind of stuck. The other group that is expressing a lot of concern have been the supervisors, and they're saying, look, I'm left with two options here. I either assign somebody a project, wait for them to bring it to me, then if it's wrong, then I'm I'm stuck. I have to do it over again, and I may not have time to do it over again. Option two is that I have them keep me informed every stage of the way. Now I'm reviewing reports all day long from 20 or 30 people reporting to me, and I don't have time to do anything. I was talking to a supervisor on a Zoom call, and he said, my day now starts at 6 in the morning and goes till 10 o'clock at night in order for me to deal with all these reports so that I can guide people as to where they're going off track and if they're making any said 
I used to be able just to wander past their desk, look over their shoulder and say, okay, that's not quite right. Now I have to wait for a Zoom call or I have to wait for an email. He said, I'm, I'm working a 120-hour week, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I can't do that much longer. And so there's an awful lot of, of whether we're going to have to adjust the way we do things and the way we supervise. And you know, People were asking him, well, what do you suggest? And he said, yeah, reduce the number of people that I supervise. Bring it down to about 10, and maybe this will work. But that means you're going to have to hire like 50 more supervisors. <laughs> so it's it's a no easy solution kind of situation. Yeah. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. So well, there have been uh, a lot of studies, uh, Chris, that said if you have more than six direct reports, you're in trouble from oh, a yeah, management definitely. standpoint. So and if one of them's <laughs> like and if one of them's like Lou, I mean one. Is enough. I mean, that's. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. Uh, get your check at the door, and you know we'll uh, see you whenever. Really, so, there's a check. I've never, I've never known about real this stuff before. Again, <laughs> instead of our, all our horsing around, talk to us about the manufacturing sector, which is what we're all about. Right. The manufacturing sector, we have a breakdown with the CMI. We have both manufacturing and service, and they both behave fairly similarly. But on the manufacturing side, we got a little bit more good news even than on the service side, which is no big surprise. Service was hit overall much harder um, by this, this lockdown recession. Services are a lot more dependent on person-to-person, face-to-face interactions. So the Social distancing has nearly killed tourism and travel and restaurant business and all of that. Manufacturing can adjust and has adjusted. They're basically waiting for the consumer to get going. The sectors that have been hit the hardest, and again, no big surprise, aviation and aerospace is down. Automotive has been down, but that may be a very temporary phenomenon. Automotive shut down simply because you had a, a pretty universal response on the part of the assembly operations, the Fords and the GMs and Volkswagens and the like, because there was concern about the health of the workers and all of that. Once they get back to work, the demand for automobiles is not in a bad place right now. There's actually more demand than there had been, um, sort of anecdotal evidence at this point, but the millennial had not been interested in getting a car. They were sort of the vanguard of we're just going to use ride share and Uber and Lyft will take over and we're not going to have a car. Now all of a sudden they're like, oh, I don't want to ride in somebody else's car. I want my own car. And they're turning to the automotive sector and saying, okay, we're ready to buy, but we don't want to buy one of those big honking trucks or SUVs. We want one of those little cars. And the manufacturers are like, Nobody wanted those dang things, so we stopped making them. So now you're telling me you want them. So the auto sector is like, great, they want the fuel sippers again. So there's going to be a transition there. But I think that the automotive sector will bounce back relatively quickly. Construction has kind of held its own. Uh, The public sector side is dead as a stump because there's no money. Commercial is not doing too bad. There's a shift in what is being built. Um, A lot more warehousing, 
logistics centers, distribution, the world supply chain has really taken a tremendous hit and will definitely change. I mean, just among other things, right now there's 500,000 sailors that are stuck either on their ships or in ports that they can't leave because of the COVID quarantine. So something like 60% of ocean cargo is stuck where it is. And that's beginning to create all kinds of supply chain issues. And that's convincing companies, hmm, we need to hold more inventory. We need more storage. The medical sector is growing fast as far as commercial is concerned. Housing is changing a little bit as well. Um, other sectors that are beginning to rebound, oil and gas, the demand is starting to come back, and that will provoke some of the producers to get back into the game. Agriculture may do well in the coming months, depending a little on where money comes from. The famine that's hitting Africa right now is severe, the 100-year locust infestation has done a number on about 13 countries. They all need food. The question is, who's going to pay for it? And if there is willingness to deal with the famine, the countries that grow food, like us, are going to benefit because they're going to be buying it from us. There's uh, one one industry in particular that uh, we're not hearing a whole lot about. And I, I just want to bring it up uh, for for some of your insight. The commercial real estate, the mm-hmm. office buildings, the all these companies that have uh, reached out to their employees and say work at home, and now they're finding they're working at home and they're really working and they're doing a good job. And a lot of them don't want to come back. Some do, some don't. And now you've got these uh, office buildings who are going to be attacked by their tenants that they want to break their leases or they want to reduce yep. the size yep. of their headquarters. That's, that is going to be a huge bubble, I think. Yep, there's two sectors in commercial real estate that are in trouble. One, of course, is the traditional office building which used to be occupied by you know, accounting firms, law firms, you know, data centers, all kinds of things that concentrated people. The other area is shopping. Uh, shopping malls are in trouble. Strip malls are in trouble. People are doing more and more of their purchasing online. That's made the brick and mortar more and more vulnerable, which was happening even before this, but now got accelerated by it. The office environments are probably going to survive, but will change. Um, What you're beginning to see is kind of a hybrid where people are doing work from home two or three, maybe four days a week, but then they come into the office so they have the opportunity to interact with one another and team build and all the other things that they do. But so that changes the structure of the office. So now it's less oriented towards individual cubes and offices, more common spaces and all of that. The trick is going to be how do you create that in an environment where you're still supposed to be doing social distancing? And that's going to be an intriguing development. It's been done, and it's not impossible. It's people sort of being segmented into little compartments so that they can be together but not together. There's also going to be a interest in satellite, smaller offices, where instead of having one big corporate headquarters, you may have them scattered 
throughout a region so that you don't have a large number of people in one facility. For example, in the Kansas City area, there's a company called Cerner, which is a big medical software company. They must have 20 or 30 smaller office buildings scattered all over the city. So there's no one sort of central Cerner location, but you can barely go anywhere in this town without seeing a Cerner installation. You know, two or three floors here, ten floors there, five floors there, and and that that may become sort of the model of the future. What about the uh, oil industry, uh, Chris? I, I see that perhaps COVID has done to maybe shale what Russia could not. Uh, we're not yeah, seeing negative oil prices, but. Yep, they have now come back up. The prices are now in that 30 to 40 range, which is still too low for the American producer, but it's it's getting back into territory that's encouraging some of the production to come back. Oil is the original inelastic good. It is something that we just use what we use. And if the prices are high, prices are low, it doesn't really matter. We're still going to use it. The demand fell dramatically because people weren't driving, they weren't going on vacations, they weren't commuting, they weren't going to school. That's now started to reverse. People now are getting back onto the highways. And just from a purely anecdotal perspective, I remember when this first began, I mean, it was like there'd been Armageddon. You know, you could go down the highway and there was nobody. It's kind of back to normal now. You know, we've we've got an actual rush hour again. Um, There's there's evidence that people are driving to wherever they're going, and that's showing up in the demand for oil. By the end of the summer, you'll probably be back to pretty normal oil consumption. The question then will be, will production keep up, and will oil prices stay low? Probably, and the the guessing at this point is just that. It's guessing, but... August, September, October, oil prices may have gotten back up into the 60, 70, even higher per barrel right. numbers. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. Maybe some are even going as high as 100 bucks a barrel. I think that's a little optimistic. Ooh-wee. But you, you've seen <laughs> China come back to life. You've seen the Europeans come back to life. The big sector that would drive more oil pricing would be aviation if the airlines got back into something close to their old patterns. But by that time, you'll have cleaned out to some extent the oil sector. A lot of the smaller companies will not come back, but the bigger ones will, and they'll be back into a production routine similar to what it was last year. Um, But it's going to be three, four months down the road at this stage. Well, I believe everything you just said, but I did want to point out we're we're here in New Jersey, and uh, traffic has picked up. Uh, Not not big, not uh, not a huge increase. The only large increase is the gas prices, which are now up a dollar a gallon. Right, right. Uh, so they're anticipating, they're warning us that, okay, you're going to be driving more, so now it's going to have to cost you more. Uh, Absolutely. But, <laughs> yeah, so they are, they're preparing us for this. 
that will depress consumer demand. That we it is. I mean, it's it's the law of anticipated demand. It's like, well, we're pretty sure this is going to go up, but just to be sure, we're going to raise prices. Um, yeah, it's it's. We have not seen a lot of consumer inflation yet, and probably won't until a little bit later in the summer because the money that came from the government to sort of ease this transition didn't go very far. Um, and it was tried and true recession response. Whenever you have a recession, you throw money at it. You try to get consumers to spend like drunken sailors on leave and, and then that spends your way out of the recession. Would have worked this time, except there was no place to spend the money. 65% of what consumers spend their money on are services. So when you shut down all the services, people got money, and then it was like, okay, go spend it. And they're like, on what? The restaurants closed, amusement parks closed, there's no ball game to go to, I can't go to the pool, I can't go to the beach, can't go on vacation, can't go to the coffee shop, can't go to the damn donut shop. What do you suggest I spend the money on? I have been filing toilet paper like a madman for the last month, I now have a second home built entirely out of toilet paper. I can't do any more spending. So now that those are opening up a little bit, um, that money will start to move, and you might start to see some consumer inflation. So have you, you've been hoarding toilet paper. No, see, I, I took an entirely different position on hoarding. You know, I thought, okay, I understand hoarding. I get it. When everybody else was hoarding toilet paper, I went to my local wine store and bought two cases of wine. Um, it's like, look now, you can find substitutes for toilet paper. They may not be the greatest, but there's you know, no substitute for a good cab. Um, so I wanted to be really ready. Well, we heard when uh, Governor Murphy here in New Jersey uh, shut down the state, uh, except for um, uh, gas stations, uh, drug stores, supermarkets, and liquor stores. And he was yep. interviewed on one of the talk shows about, well, why liquor stores? Why are you keeping them open? And then they, and then he said, do you want to see 100,000 people walking the streets going through the DTs? You don't want to see that. <laughs> exactly. So we have to you know, give and- them their fix. You know, and we had we had the same same experience here in the Midwest because we kept all those things open too. We also kept the gun shops open because it's very important <laughs> that if if you see a COVID virus, it's it's perfectly okay in Kansas to shoot it. Um, so it's it makes yeah. sense. Yep. <laughs> makes sense. So what do you see for uh, 30, 60 days down the road, uh, Mr. Keough? I think we're going to see a pretty definitive shift each of those months. I think the next 30 days are going to be kind of an extension of what we've been experiencing. Very halting, a little bit better by the end of the month, not a lot to write home about. By the end of July, 60 days out, I think we'll be back to a semblance of normal. An awful lot of the service-type operations will have reopened by then. Um, People will have started to adjust to the kind of the new environment. I mean, restaurants are open now, but people are just having to get used to the new routine. I mean, we used to go to restaurants because it was 
fun and the ambiance was good and all that. Now you've got a waiter in a hazmat suit flinging your food at you from 10 feet away. And, and it's, it's in a not as much lot. fun. Yeah. In it, a parking yeah, we've lot had this, we've, we've had the <laughs> same experience. I had a friend said, yeah, I, I got great seating. I was right next to the dumpster so I could see what other people have been eating. All day. Um, and I just assumed that, well, they seem to be leaving a lot of this behind. So I don't want that. Um, so by the end of July, we will be sort of experiencing normal by the end of the summer. I think we'll be in a position to understand how we'll go into the fall. Cause if we're going to get the second wave of any substance, it will have occurred by then. We will probably know enough about the virus to be prepared for what happens when the weather turns colder again. So at this point, I'm expecting much better news at the end of 90 days than at the beginning of 90 days. But hopefully by September, uh, things will have started to be a little bit normal. But even even with that return to normalcy, you're seeing things that are still going to be slow. Conventions and things, they're still canceling programs all the way out to October um, because they don't know for sure. And people don't want to put the energy into organizing something and then have to pull the plug at the last minute. So it's it's going to be quite a while before you get a, a complete return. And that will also be dependent on the state. Nevada is going to recover its convention business as fast as it possibly can. It has no choice. It can't. It can't go much longer without it. States like New York and Illinois, yeah, New Jersey, they're going to be like, yeah, we don't care about this stuff. I mean, we'll survive with our conventions, and it may be slower to return. Well, Chris, we appreciate your input always on what these numbers mean, what the credit managers index details and why they're important to the economy, and for people to really understand them, not just in the credit managers world, but in the kind of the general business community as well. And your input on, you know, where the economy might be at the moment, it sounds like it's uh, kind of going up the flight of stairs that earlier fell down. So thank you for joining us again. Yeah, we just need to get to the point where we can replace those stairs with a good old escalator again. Funny as usual and as smart as well. Thank you very much for being on, <laughs> Thank on you. the show. Thank well, you. Well, hopefully, better news next month. Talk to you guys later. Work on it, will you? <laughs> I will. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. And we've been talking with Dr. Chris Keel, who is a PhD economist with Armada Corporate Intelligence, and he reports on the National Association of Credit Managers. Credit Managers Index, and he works with lots of companies on their uh, outlook for the economy. Uh, we appreciate having him on Manufacturing Talk Radio, and we would encourage all of our listeners to go to JMC, Jacket Media Company, that's jacketmediaco.com, and look at all of our other shows. We've got uh, half a dozen up, and we've got others blooming, so always visit there. Subscribe to Manufacturing Outlook. Dot com. You check out our e-zine there. More information coming out about the economy and things in general and manufacturing. So 
we're always putting a lot of information out. Lou, you've been being an information service provider now for almost 50 years. Yeah. Seems like I must know some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and he puts out good stuff with his company, All Metals and Forge Group, which is the sponsor for Manufacturing Talk Radio. And as always, we appreciate you tuning into this episode of Manufacturing, Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at msgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.